0: Um, okay, the Richmond's are joining us, we can we start. Uh, I would like to dedicate the share for uh, the safety of the Jews of Israel, obviously, and the soldiers who are potentially right now going into Gaza. And uh, may our learning be a merit to protect them and to um, uh, 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 take care of them. And if you don't mind, I would actually like to start with um, saying a chapter of Tehillim. So if we can say it together, I'm gonna mm-hmm. do chapter chapter 121. Um and uh you could repeat after me, I'll say it verse by verse, um, and then we'll we'll start learning. Shirlamalos asenaya laharem me'ayin yavo ezri. So this is chapter 121. Ezri Mayema Adeina <speaking> I say Shamayam Al Yitain La Might Al Yanum Shemerecha, Hine Lo Yanum Velo Yushan Shamar Yisrael, Ade Nay Shaimracha, Ade Night Silcha, Please protect the uh, people of of, Eretz Israel who are under attack and the soldiers who are um, going into harm's way to uh, protect the Jewish people. Amen. Okay. So, so actually tonight, the the my the the first. Kind of conversation I want to have. The the first uh, thought is very much related to this, actually. So Herman, if you if you have the text in front of you, if you don't mind reading for us uh, the first four verses, if you don't mind.
1: What
0: what are we on? So we are we are we are in Parshas Bamidbar. It is the uh, first Parsha in Sefer uh, Bamidbar. Um, Paul, do you have the page number in the stone? Seven
1: twenty-six.
0: 7.26. 7.26, okay. Thank
1: you. All right. So, okay. Herman, if you don't mind. God spoke to Moses in the Sinai Desert in the communion tent on the first day of the second month in the second year of the Exodus, saying, Take a census of the entire Israelite community. Do it by families following following the paternal line. According to the names of each male taken individually, you and our own shall take a tally of them by their divisions, counting every male over 20 years, who is fit for service. Alongside you, there shall be one man from each tribe, and he shall be the head of his paternal line. These are the names. of So, Herman, so so let's pause here for a second. So.
0: The, the the Torah starts off by telling us a, a few details that seem to be right, a little bit extraneous at the first glance. Right? So they were in the desert of Sinai. They were in the Sinai desert. So we know this, right? Because the previous, the previous, right? The very last Pasuk in Chumash Vayikra says that these are all the mitzvots, right? I'm forgetting exactly the text of the Pasuk, right? that Hashem taught Moshe the um, Har Sinai, right? So we know that they were in the Sinai Desert. They never traveled from there. And they were living there from when they got the Torah. Um, then it tells us that where he spoke to Moshe specifically, the when Moed, when he, when he went and he, and he visited Moshe in the Ohel Moed. Then when was this? This was the first day of the second month in the second year, let's say some may eretz for when from 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 when they left Egypt. So why do we need all this framing, right? Why do we, why do we need all this context? The second point we have over here is, is that Moshe says Make a census count the entire Jewish community, right? Every single male, okay? Then he proceeds to exclude a very large number of males. Then who is in fact actually being counted? Not the women, not the children, male or female, below the age of 20, it's a very, very specific class of people: men twenty and older, and in some places it says really only only men between the ages of twenty and sixty. And it excluded Shavat Levi, and Shavat Levi gets counted separately later. But by Levy, uh Levi, I'm sorry, all Levites, male Levites over the age of thirty days are counted. So why is Moshe, when he's commanded to take a census of the Jewish people, to count the entire Jewish people, only count the Jewish army, the military force? The second thing is, when we think about a census, and that's very funny, I was contacted a couple of weeks ago, there was a, uh, a young woman who I, I know her mother, um, and she asked me, her daughter had had her uh, bat uh today. And she really was at a loss at what to speak about because she said, like the, my, my Torah portion is devoted to a census. And is there anything kind of less dry? <laughs> Any, sorry, is there anything drier than, than a census, right? What could possibly be you know, instructive or inspirational about learning about the various numbers of the Jewish people? I remember somebody wanted my, uh, a friend of mine was pointing out, he said, you know, there's lots of discussions about the authorship of the Torah, and if it was composed and authored, and he said, one of the greatest proofs of the, of, of the divine nature of the Torah is that which guy would invent such a boring chapter, <laughs> right? <laughs> All these, you, know, you know, you want to talk about kind of complicated, you know, lines and subs generals, whatever it is, that's not a proof, right? Whoever's read Lord of the Rings, especially the uh, appendices of Lord of the Rings, that makes sense. You know, Tolkien goes for on and on about the various lineages of all the different elven kings and kings of man. So, okay, people people could do that. <laughs> but this chapter, I mean, right?
2: You, actually, uh, you, read, you read the Lord of the Rings in detail and all the appendices.
0: I, I, I would like to pretend to be nerdy enough that I did that. I didn't do that. I did read Lord of the Rings fully as a kid. My mother read it to me uh, as my bedtime story. And then I read it again myself. And I read some of the appendices. But no, but my sister, my younger sister, had friends who learned the elven language and went, went full on hardcore. <laughs> um, but the, <laughs> the point is is that the census seems very boring. And she asked me to help her come up with, with some idea for her Vartora. Uh, uh, and I wanted to just talk a little bit about some of the thoughts that we kind of explored. So the first thing to recognize is that the people who they're counting here are is um, uh, specifically the army, the army. Okay. the 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 second point is that if you look, right, when did the Jews build the Mishkan? Right. So the Jews, right? They 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 got the Torah. They. Sinned, they built the Mishkan. So they built the Mishkan, I think, in the second year, in the first month, right? Chanukah, Samishkan, Mishkan, right? By Yom Hashmini, right? It was, it was on the, on the. I think I, I, I believe it was on the second, in the second year, in the, in, in, in the first month. So it was thirty days before this. Um, in fact, they say that one of the reasons why Hashem counted the Jews, the commentary, say, at this point was because. He only, you know, it says that one only puts a mezuzah on a residence where they lived for 30 days. So there's a Talmudic principle, and you have us in many places, that the minimum share, the minimum amount of what's called kviyos, permanence, is 30 days, right? And therefore, the shekhinah and the mishkan had to be among the Jewish people for 30 days for it to be kavua there, for it to be set there, and then Hashem kind of felt that that now the Jews were ready to be counted Rashi writes over here that the reason why hashem counted the Jews over here Rashi just says right mid uh, so where, so where was it it was um, uh, right so this was actually happening he says um, uh, before um, uh, that, sorry, that before the Mishkan was built, Hashem spoke to Moshe from Harsinai, and then once they built the Mishkan, they they um, uh, they, they Hashem spoke to Moshe from the Omer. But what Rashi talks about the counting, he says, right? Rashi says, um, "I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong commentary here," so that explains why I don't see Rashi. Okay, so Rashi says. Um, Because of Hashem's love for the Jewish people, he counted them at every opportunity. When they they left Egypt, he counted them. When they died in the Egel, he counted them. And there's a discussion, where was this census? Because we don't see it explicitly in the text. To know how many survived. When Hashem came to dwell amongst them, He counted them. At the first day of Nisan, they set up the Mishkan. And the first day of ER He counted them. So Rashi is saying that this particular census, the reason why it happens, was because it was specifically because now It was 30 days after the Mishkan was set up. Now there was a sense of permanence. Now Hashem was considered that He dwelled among them with the Kviyas, and therefore He counted them because He loved them." That's what Rashi says. What Rashi does not explain is that what about counting as an act of love, right? Counting, many people think of counting in a way as almost being dehumanizing, right? oh, I'm not a person to you, I'm just a number, right? Many Holocaust survivors very often talk about as one of the aspects, kind of, one of the uh, dehumanizing aspects of their experience was the fact that to the Nazis, they weren't a person, they were a number, right? We think of that as a way of, as, as, as something which kind of takes away our, our, our personhood, right? That we, that we are no longer a complex creature with thoughts, wants, and desires, we're simply a number, and we think of a census in that way, right? And in fact, we know in general that the that the Jews are not that there's a, that, that that there is a prohibition against counting the Jewish people. It's considered to be an ayin hara. It's a limiting thing. It's something which limits them. And David Hamel counted them, and there was all these terrible things. So counting and numbering and viewing them as a number is something which 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 one would think is not an act of love, right? I know that in many kind of jewish households especially the more uh hasidic or more kind of eastern eastern european there is a tradition you don't count your kids right i do it whenever i'm in the store because i never know where they are and how many i came with how many i'm leaving with but but for for less scatterbrained people right you you don't you don't count your kids right my mother-in-law will never tell you how many grandkids she has right she knows and she knows who she likes and who she doesn't. No, I'm kidding. She loves all of them. But, but, but she, she does not count them, right? They, they don't give a number. Like, I'll ask my mother-in-law, how many first cousins does my wife have? She's like, not enough, not enough. Or, or there's some, a lot, whatever. But they don't count their kids. It's considered by, also, when we count for a minion, there's an ancient uh, 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 tradition of using the words of a pasuk to count, hoshiya, that has 10 words, and you count, and so, you know, I remember when I was like, when, when I was a kid, I never understood why, you know, a rabbi would go to me, I was like 13, or 14, he's like, S, Amecha, and I'm like, what are you asking? Me? Um, but, but, the, well, the, uh, they'd count
1: how many feet were in a room to see if there the was counting
0: a- feet, exactly. So there's something kind of very negative about counting. Right. The Maharal writes that it is an act of being Mitzam it's an act of limitation, which kind of runs counter to our understanding of each person's infinite uh, potential. Okay, So what's happening over here, long story short? There is a very important point to recognize, and this is important when we think about the context of the Israeli soldiers going into war right now, is that there is no single person in the world whose individuality matters less than a soldier, right? A soldier's job is to be a member of their unit, a member of their battalion, a member of their command, that's it, their individuality, who they are as a person doesn't matter. Their opinions don't matter. Their thoughts don't matter, right? My grandfather used to tell me that that there was a saying in the Russian army, I forgot it goes in Russian, that basically a thinking soldier is a dead soldier or a bad soldier, I forget. Right? They're, they're, they're meant to be kind of uniform, they do what they're told, they move in parade form, they move together, they lose their individuality. And this is extremely prevalent in times of war, right? Soldiers are meant to sacrifice for the, for the, for the collective, they're expendable, right? Even in the regarding, you know, even in Jewish law, right? One is not obligated to risk their life to save another. This is not true in the context of a soldier. During a time of war, a soldier in the Jewish army is obligated to risk their life for the people they're fighting for and to save their buddies. In fact, in the Israeli army, there's a penalty for somebody who doesn't risk their life to go save their buddies. Right? This is something which a soldier loses their sense of self. The Jewish people at this point they're bimidbar sinai, right? They're standing, they have finished getting the Torah, they finished the year at the mountain, they finished building the Mishkan, the Shina is Shruya Bis they have finished that stage in their development. What is coming next? What's coming next is the invasion of Israel. The invasion of Canaan. Right? Who are the people who are going to be invading Canaan? The men from 20 to 60. Who will lose their identity and their individuality? The men from 20 to 60. Hashem at this point wants to stop and count each one of them individually to broadcast and to extend, and to show to them that yes, at this point, the mm-hmm. role which you're assuming is one of a soldier. But to me, you are still an individual and you matter. And each soldier who dies is another Jewish kid who died. And it's a life, and it's a person, and it's a father, and it's a child, and it's a brother. And it's somebody who could have been teaching Torah. It's somebody who could have been helping people. It's somebody who could have been impacting the lives of thousands of people. And and, and that is somebody who right now is going to war. That is the lesson that is why Hashem is counting them. Mitoch Khibasan He's counting them out of love to show them how they're loved as individual people, even though they are going into a role which seems to argue against exactly that. Why does it why does Rashi not mention this? Rashi seems to only talk about the Hashra, Hashem's. Presence being among them, right? Uh, uh, amongst them, why is that a reason to count them, and how does that uh, relate to them going to war? The reason is, is because we've spoken about, right? And, and Herman has pointed this out uh, before. If you look at the text when the Torah talks about building a Mishkan, right, it says the Asulim Migdash bis Besochah, right, that the Mishkan was a physical entity. But the true place where the Shechina was manifest through the Mishkan was to be inside the hearts of the Jewish people, right? B'Shechanti B'Socham, right? And I will dwell amongst them. These are people who are now moving away from the protection of the Mishkan. These are people who may think Hashem has rested His presence among the Jewish camp, but I am now moving away from them and Hashem is counting them to show them that the Hashros, Hashkina is inside all of them. And when they go out to the fields of battle, they are bringing Hashem and the Shekina and their mission with them. And that's why they're being counted.
2: So that kind of implies that Hashem didn't know that they wouldn't be going to invade Israel for another many years.
0: So, so that's a very good question, right? The question is, you know, and this really kind of goes to the whole deeper issue of, you know, foreknowledge and free will, right? About if Hashem knows the future, right? But the reality is, is that even, you know, however you uh, resolve that, that, that question, which is a big uh, debate in the commentaries, the Rambam, the Ravid, the rabab there are many, many other opinions about this, but over here, it's not really kind of that exactly, because in the Jews' perspective, they are going right? So therefore, for them, this message is important. Now, even if you're right, it will turn out not to be relevant. Um, there's, there's a, there's, there's a. So now, there there's, there, now there there seems to be a contradictory value. However, we know that when the Jews come to Sinai, it says right that va'yichan uh, sham Right, it says a very similar language. Right. That the that the, that the Jews came to Midbar Sinai. One moment, let me let me pull it up right here. Um, it says, May mm-hmm. Midbar Again, we again we see the 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 kind of the Midbar Sinai being evoked again over there. midbar and they rested in the desert. Sham Yisrael Right. So this is a famous verse, and the grammar in this verse doesn't make any sense, right? Because uh, is all plural, right? And then in mid, right? Uh, they camped in the desert, and then in the middle of the verse it switches to singular and it goes, and the and Yisrael kind of um uh, uh camped next to the mountain or uh, uh opposite the mountain. And it's interesting is that if you look how the Jews are referred to in all the other verses surrounding that verse in Shmos. Uh, your test base. you'll notice that the Jews are always referred to as B'nai Yisrael, right? And this is one of the very first and one of the very few references of the Jewish people as Yisrael, as opposed to B'nai Yisrael. So Rashi famously comments that the reason w- that, that that the emphasis over here is uh, that, that when the Jews came to the mountain, they came in some sense of unity, right? Now, one can take this as like a nice you know, beautiful sentiment. They were all together and all were at one. It's a beautiful thing, Jewish unity. We have never really seen it since then. Um, uh, but, but whatever, we're, we're, we're difficult people. But the Amperion, the, but the who is written by uh Rep. Shlomo Gansfried, who also wrote the Kitzar uh, uh, Shulchan Arif, he comments over here and he explains and he says, it's not simply, as we mentioned, I think we mentioned this in the past, right, that the, the reason why it was necessary to have this level of unity such that they were Yisrael, like literally one person, right, past, and the reason why it's Yisrael is because past, present, and future, right, that they're one person is because, as we've mentioned, right, no one Jew can keep the entire Torah, right, because no one Jew has all the mitzvahs in the Torah, right, some are for men, some are for women, some are for Kohanim, some are for Leviim, some are for people who live in the land of Israel, some are people who live outside the land of Israel, right, all sorts of different types of mitzvahs. Some are relevant only for a king. Some are relevant only for a Kohen Gadol. No one person can keep all the mitzvahs. And the idea is is that when we are unified as one and we are kind of supporting each other and together and we meld ourselves from an individual to a community to kind of the one Jewish body, one corpus, then the mitzvahs that we do are there for all of us. And what's interesting is that it seems to argue almost for the negation, for the nullification of individuality. That the essence of the Jew is to be a part and parcel and a drone in kind of the Jewish body, right? That we're all just tiny parts of a whole. And the reality is, the answer is that it's not a contradiction right, is that there is this idea, there's a, there's a fascinating story, and I'm not going to remember the composer's name, which is a pity, because if any of you are musically educated, which I am not, um, this is, I think, ostensibly a very impressive composer. So, so you know, I, I don't remember his name. The point is, is that when he got older, he eventually retired, and a journalist came to interview him. And they were sitting and they were listening to some concert being being played on the radio. And he was interviewing he was interviewing the uh, conductor. And the conductor stopped <laughs> the middle of the conversation and said, "Huh, I wonder why they dropped the nineteenth violin." <laughs> and the guy's like, "I guess the journalist was also reasonably musically uh, sophisticated." He said. What are you talking about? He's like, that piece is supposed to have 19 violins. This one only has 18. And he's like, you, come on, you can't hear a difference between 18 violins and 19 violins. He said, no, 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 they, 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 have some reason, they they dropped the 19th violin. So the journalist went, he called. He found out that, indeed, they had, they had dropped it. The 19th violinist uh, was sick or was out, and they <laughs> dropped the 19th <laughs> violin, right? For people who don't understand the intricacies of music and don't have the ear, so then everything is just a mass. there is the band there is well, not the band um, uh, what do they call? What's the proper word? orchestra Orchestra, thank you I'm yeah sorry the orchestra <laughs> the orchestra right They're there and and then and they're just one group one unit and each person does you know I never really understood. But you know, I I I went to classical music um, uh, uh, things a couple of times, a few times in my life, uh, you know, various anniversaries. I'm I'm not a a, a big official. Uh, I mean, I like some classical music, but my wife is infinitely more sophisticated than me. So I went with her, um, and I'm sad to say that. I'm not gonna say this for her because she's listening, but I fell asleep at least for, for a lot of of the second thing. And I have to say, it wasn't even comfortable chairs. If you're in, you know, I think it were in Carnegie Hall, I forgot it was super uncomfortable chairs, but whatever, it was fine. They do that on <laughs> What?
2: They, they do that on purpose so people don't snore.
0: <laughs> well, I beat the system. Now the, the <laughs> was a good nap. I mean, we had a baby recently, it was it was something which was very necessary. But the, the, uh, the, uh, the point is, is that, you know, to me, it's in one mass, one mixture. But to somebody who really has an appreciation, they hear the 19th violin. They hear everything. Every person has their role. And that is the relationship between the Jewish individual and as, Jew, as a member of the Jewish people. Hashem hears the 19th violin. Hashem hears every little piece, every little thing that every Jew is doing in their own way and every single Jew is precious and essential, and their work is of incredible value, and even though for us we kind of think about does the community matter, does the individual matter, for Hashem there's no contradiction. There is one Jewish people, and when they're unified and working together, they are a group of individuals where Hashem can count and see each and every single one, and each one is precious, and yet when they work together, they make this incredible thing that's far greater than just the sum of their parts. Okay. So let's so let's uh, uh, move on a little bit. I want to now focus just on the passage that we mentioned. If you don't mind, jumping to Shvuas for a second before we go back, because we mentioned, and it says, sinai bar. and they rested in the desert. And the Torah again references that they were in Midbar Sinai and they were in the desert. The commentary say there's a measure in a Gemara like this that says the reason why it references the desert, because the Torah could only have been given in the desert. The Maharal explains the reason why the Torah could only be given in the desert, because it needs to be given in a place that's not full of materialism. Rabaran Feldman, uh, uh Rosh Hashiva, asked the following question. He said, I don't understand. There's a Gemara that says that when Moshe went up to heaven, the angel said to him, you know, this is our Torah, sharing is not caring, right? Um, no, no. So for those who are not familiar, that's what they tell kids in preschool, sharing is caring. So now any kids who are of the age of three or so, when they want something that someone else has, they <clears> come <throat> over and with big eyes and tremendous self-righteousness, they say, you know, Simcha, sharing is caring. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't work the other way, the other way, but okay. They have to start small. The point is, is that the angels did not want to share the Torah or give Moshe the Torah, so they ther- so they threatened to kind of burn him, behevul pi him, and Hashem tells Moshe, hold on to the throne of glory, and I will protect you and answer the angels. And Moshe gives this famous answer. He says, Do you guys have a father or a mother? Do you guys have kosher and non-kosher? Do you eat food? Do you have kind of, you know, um, um, uh, what's it called? Phino, you know, physical bodies. None of the Torah is applicable to you. The Torah is embedded in the material, physical reality. That's what it talks to. That's what it relates to. So that's where it should be. Um, we'll talk to, you know, a different time about, you know, what what was the deeper context of this debate? But, but Ramaron Feldman points out that the, the the Torah is meant to be in a physical place. It's, it's, it's kind of meant to be embedded in materialism. It's there, right? Barasi Yitzhahara, Barasi Torah Talmud, I created an evil inclination and I created the Torah as an antidote, right? The Torah is meant to engage in a world filled with temptation and materialism and desire and suffering and all these different things. And it's there to help us navigate it. So why does the Maharal understand that Hashem gave the Torah in the desert to give it in a place where there's no materialism if that's not the real place where the Torah is supposed to function. So Barron Feldman gave a fascinating explanation. He said, the reason why the Torah was given in the desert was to give us context about what should be our attitude towards uh, materialism. He says, when someone engages in the pursuit of materialism in the desert, they're doing it for survival, right? You, In a desert, you don't have expectations of being able to eat a ribeye steak, right, for dinner, right? You bring what you need, you do what you have to do, you dig deep for water. If you need water, you you in a desert you survive. Materialism and material goods are there to help you survive. That's how you relate to them in a desert environment. So too, when someone gets the Torah and is able to live and absorb the meaning of the Torah, then they look at the material world around them and it becomes a means to an end, not an end in and of themselves. They don't engage in the material world just to enjoy and just to benefit, but they they engage in it in order to be able to uh, survive and do what the Torah wants them to do. I thought that was a nice idea. Okay, let us move on. Paul, if you don't mind reading from... Um, so let's skip, if you don't mind... The names—they're all kind of very, very, very important—and um, we'll, we'll we'll skip more to the end to the end of the of the parsha, if you don't mind. Um, to chapter three, chapter three, verse one. Sorry,
2: am I unmuted? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, these are the offspring of Aaron and Moses on the day Hashem spoke with Moses at Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron. The firstborn was Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Itamar. These were the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed Kohanim, whom he inaugurated to minister. Nadab and Abihu died before Hashem when they offered alien fire before Hashem in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. But Eleazar and Itamar ministered during the lifetime of Aaron, their father.
0: Okay, so, that's, so let's so pause here for a second. Um, so the Torah over here begins, and it's, it's about to go talk about the Levium, uh, and it says, "V'eila told us Moshe." told us Aaron and Moshe. Moshe Sinai, right? And then it proceeds to list the sons of Aaron but it doesn't mention the sons of Moshe at all, right? It talks about the, the Aviu and Elazar in the summer and what happened to them, but it doesn't talk at all about, about, the, about the sons of Aaron. So so the Rashi brings the Gemara and Sanhedrin, where the Gemara in Sanhedrin says, why does it say, Moshe v'Aron? In order to teach us that the Aaron's sons were also called Moshe's sons. Why? Because Moshe taught them Torah. Right, and when someone teaches, right, call, um, call, call, uh, call, call, a ben, uh, uh, call, call, a malamed, ben, Torah, whoever teaches us the, their, their, their friends on Torah. So, so, uh, sorry, ben chaver Torah is right. It's a, it's as if, it's as if he gave birth to them. Okay, this is like a very, very interesting statement. So why? Why does it list Moshe here? But why is it important to mention this and to teach us to, uh, to us here? And also, if it's going to be teaching us about the descendants of Aaron and Moshe, why doesn't it? Why doesn't it include include the sons of Moshe? So the basic reason why it doesn't include the sons of Moshe over here is because really, it's just trying to list the Kohanim, right? The goal is trying to list the Kohanim. But why does it feel the need to mention Eliezer of the sons of Moshe? We never really see this anywhere else in the Torah. The reason is, is because here there's a very important lesson, right? Is that Moshe, Moshe is the one who's in charge. He's counting all these people, right? And Moshe really taught everybody Torah, right? So why does it only say Elah told us Aaron and Moshe and, um, and then it talks about Aaron's sons, right? Moshe taught the Nisim Torah, right? Moshe taught all the Jewish people Torah. So if it was going to list the offspring of Moshe, it should list all the Jews. What was special about the sons of Aaron? So there's a source elsewhere that says that the way Torah was uh, transmitted was that first Moshe would go and he would get um, a teaching from God. He would teach it to Aaron, and then he would teach it to Elazar and Isamar, and then the Zekanim, and then the Jewish people. So a summer we were given special kind of, special attention. And I remember hearing a very nice kind of, uh about this, that it's very tempting for a rabbi to try to talk to a big crowd, right? Or a teacher to try to teach to a big crowd, right? You have a full lecture hall of students and everyone's listening to you, looking into your mouth and you feel like that's the greatest accomplishment, right? That you are teaching the masses Torah or whatever it is you're teaching, and that's something that's incredible. And what the Torah is teaching you is that that's not true. You want to be able to get to the level of Kala Malamed, um, uh that whoever teaches their friend son Torah does if he birthed them, meaning that you really are really having an impact on somebody that only comes with personalized attention, right? When you are teaching to a few people and discussing with a few people and being able to teach the people not the topic right that's when you're impactful but when you're teaching to a large crowd you can be charismatic you can be fantastic there are people who could be impacted by you but ultimately you're teaching the topic and not the people and therefore Moshe only had the merit of kiilu that as it was it was, it was as if he birthed them because these were people he gave individual attention to as opposed to the rest of the Jewish people, interesting idea. All right, um, we'll stop here. If anybody has any any other thoughts, please please share them. So I want to say they have they have one more story. So the Sholmikablik has a story over there about Yasseloviganov or Maiseloviganov, if I remember. But basically, that the Balshemtiv who used to he you know there was the kind of the local town thief, the Jewish thief and um you know he this was his business and because he came he became one of the big hasidim of the balsham so he didn't stop stealing but he he um he only stole from the from the rich <laughs> uh a, a a robin hood of sorts okay so the point is what happens in the story and, and why this is uh related to what, to what you were just saying herman is that so the, so whenever he would be on the run from the cops he would run into the um uh show of the balsham and the Baal Shem Tov would, would bless him and the cops would forget all about it. One day, he heard that he wanted to have his big heist, kind of the one he's going to use to retire, and he heard that there was some nephew of the czar who was coming with 30,000 ruble, and you can listen to the song, it's much better when, when, when Shlomo Kabak sings it, but he he the, the point is that he steals and he runs, and, and it's the day after Shavuos, and he runs into the uh, Besmadrish, and he hears that the mashandov had died and he is just doesn't know what to do right he he the had died how could it be whatever it is like you know like who's going to take here you know there are plenty of Rebbas for the righteous but where's the Rebbe for the thieves right the mas was there for a the thief right and then to me it's a beautiful story because yes I I kind of you know my litfish my kind of misnagged brain was obviously kind of getting a little bit stressed out about the whole thief thing but the reality is the message, the underlying message is there that, you know, a, a Rebbe, a leader, is, is not just a Rebbe for people who are kind of pure as the driven snow. It has to be ready to take care of everyone. Either way, so Meishala runs to the Ba'ashem to grave and it's freshly dug and, and it's like, you know, he lies down and he begins to cry and he says, yes, you left plenty of very nice students for the righteous, but who did you leave for the thieves? And... Um, and uh, the Ba'ashem Khan falls asleep, I think, on the grave or something, and the Ba'ashem Tev comes to him in a dream and says, I've taken care of you, but your behavior your behavior has to stop. It's time that you became the rabbi for the thieves. And the story ends that he becomes a great rabbi. The Hasidim don't say his name because of this kind of complex background, but, but he he kind of took on, I, th- I think it's what the story ends. You can listen to the song, but that, that he kind of takes on the mantle. So that, that was kind of this very nice story I heard from from, from, uh, from Kavach. He has, he has a lot of very, his English stories collection is very nice. Um, as a musnaget, it, it's sometimes you have to, you know, it's interesting, you know, it, 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 it's a very interesting experience. But like at one point, one, one Rebbe's Davini Meyer Davini at i Mincham sorry, at midnight, um, with, and getting the whole village, all the peasants, all the beautiful peasants, according to Shem to go daven with him together at midnight <laughs> which, which is, that's a holy thing. It's just, it's, it's something which, as a misnaget, you're always like, what's your says. You know? um, but I'm not questioning their holies. They're much holier people than I can even begin, even begin to imagine. But either way, it's a beautiful thing. I very much recommend the story. But the Baal Shemtub, and what I was telling somebody about the Baal Shemtub recently, that them don't really understand how much the Baal Shemtub helped them. The Baal had two major innovations that misnagdim use and abuse until today without recognizing where they came from. The first is the heated mikvah, that until the Baal Tev, you know, women who had to use the mikvah or men had to go into an ice-cold mikvah, and in Europe in the winter they had to break the ice to use the mikvah, as you can imagine. And the Baal Tev, and even this was like, you know, halakhically, you know, challenging but he innovated to have a heated mikvah, so it should be a pleasant thing. And it became widely accepted across every community to have a heated mikvah. In fact, these days, like a mikvah, you talk about a mikvah, the pleasure of a mikvah is that it's like the kosher jacuzzi, right? You go in there, and it's hot, and it's kishmak, right? So, so that's one big innovation of the Baal Shem Tov. and And it really kind of changed a lot. Uh, the other thing that people don't realize is that he was a shokhin. He was actually, by training, he was a ritual slaughter. And he invented, I forget, like I think he invented like the double-sided blade or something, but basically he had a very important innovation in 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 shchiten knives that made them be able to be a lot more durable and a lot more kosher and last a lot longer than they used to. And this also, despite what the like to say, became extremely widely accepted and used. That that, that, that was kind of an interesting thing. Well,
1: yeah. any thoughts about... Uh the Book of Ruth. Yeah, so I, I was
0: reading I was reading this, this, I heard this fascinating idea about the Book of Ruth that I never really thought about, right? And, and you get kind of, you think about it like, like you know, Ruth, who is she, right? She starts off as a Moabite princess, right? Elevated, high, kind of very righteous person, right? Then she goes and she converts to marry a Jewish noble, right? And we don't even know if she converted at that point or not. It's, it's, there's a there's a, uh, a debate, right? She goes to marry if Machon or Chelion, right? No, know, uh, before Boaz, right? She marries first one of the, exactly. She marries first one of the sons of Ali Mel, Ali Mel, sorry, right? And Naomi, and he's not a great guy. He dies. She goes and she follows her mother-in-law into a life of tremendous poverty, right? And to the point that she's a beggar in the field. And she kind of gives up everything because she believes in truth. She found truth, amechami, right? Your people are my people. She kind of, she buys into it completely. And she, she doesn't stop. And she goes and she, and she, and she moves there to Israel. Fine. So we like to think that Rus has a happy ending, right? Because she marries Boaz, right? And, and that's the ultimate, you know, ven, vacation, she goes and she marries a, 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 a Shofet, she marries one of the judges, and everything is amazing. But the reality is, according to the I forget, the Talmud and Medrash, Boaz dies the next day. Right? Now, the way so I heard this very nice idea from Rabbi Kalis in the Yisrael, and he said, imagine what the conversation was in, in the mikveh the next day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Bayaz made an interesting biblical derivation. Ma'yav, the lay ma'yavis. The Torah only only prohibits marrying a male Moab, not a female from, from Moab, right? That was Bolas' big, 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 big innovation, right? And everyone disagreed with him. His cousin, Pliny Almighty, disagreed with him. He rejected Rus, Rus, and he was like a conventional from guy who was like, the Torah says you can't marry somebody from Moab. The Torah says that. And comes by us with the whole thing. No, it's male, not female. I'm a, okay, <laughs> he gets married, and the next day he dies, yeah? So you're, you're, you're sitting in the mikveh the next day. What thoughts are going through your mind? Uh, he, he's a big person, but I'm saying, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to say anything, right? So, so Rus hears that, I'm sure. And she's living with that. And 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 the Torah said that the, 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 the matter says that when does Rus die, she survives to see Shlomo HaMelech. Right?
1: Wow. So wow.
0: could you imagine her life that she goes to this incredible kind of period of incredible difficulty, but she holds on. And in the end, she sees the fruits that she bears. She sees... David, she sees Shlomo, she sees the person who builds the base HaMikdash, she kind of and 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 she dies before things go go south again. But but you know, imagine the vindication and 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 kind of the 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 Nachas this grandmother has at the end of her long life. Yeshai, right? We, forget, we can't forget her grandson was Yishai. Yeshai is one of the four people who it says never sin, right. One of the four people, only four people in the entire history of the Jewish people who the uh, uh, kind of our sages he just never sinned.
1: Father of David, right? Father
0: of David, exactly, right? This, this is who she gave birth to. And the lesson the Arab council was saying is that like things are hard and they're kind of, we think that we're doing the right thing and we're pushing and it's just not working out for us, right? And like, you know, well, it's like we're, we're trying to be good, we're trying and things just keep going south. And the lesson from Ruth is keep pushing; it will come to you at the end. Maybe in the next world, maybe in this world, but keep pushing. I thought that was a very, very nice, very nice epiphany. I never, I never, I, I never thought of
1: it in this context, but I thought it was a very nice idea. All right, okay. I know it's a, bit, a big deal in the conservative movement. They always have a, a, a large reading of the Book of Ruth. Ah, For reason. Why? I don't know. I just remember they did that.
0: Uh huh. Interesting. Okay, listen. It's it's good. You know, Ruth is uh is one of the books of uh, Tanakh. and the Hamish Miguel, so you should be very uh, respectful of it. All right. I think uh, Chabad doesn't read it. Is that correct? I
1: think okay. Chabad doesn't, doesn't read Kohelus. Or the book or, of Ruth. Or,
0: Ruth, or Ruth either. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I, and I, can, I I can't speak for Chabad. I know that they, I know that they don't read Kohelus. They're not big fans of Kohelus. Which is funny because it kind of makes sense that Hasidim are not big fans of it, and Lit fox love it because Kohalas is like this incredibly depressing meditation about the pointlessness of life. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, good old depressed Litvaks love it. But um, but the uh, like me, but, but but yeah, but I I didn't know this about Rose. I I I have no idea why Chabad doesn't read it. I'm sure I'm sure they have a reason, but
1: no, that's sure always did it on Arab.
0: Oh yeah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. We do it on the second day in israel they do everything on on one day it's actually very funny right now i'm really being exposed to this israel two-day one-day thing because i'm scheduling interviews for next week in israel and um there are there are these uh kind of people are all scheduling things for me on tuesday <laughs> and i'm like No, know in america that's still true guys <laughs> it's funny. And they're like yeah i know about i know about chag i know about chag but it's on it's on, it's on monday i'm like i know no it's on tuesday <laughs> Like no, it's on Monday. I said no, no. I said here, Chutzpah. It's two days. They said, Oh, wow. Anyway,
1: Chutzpah. Chutzpah. Have a good yom tov, and I'll see you all Mir Hashem next week.
0: Yep. Thank you. Bye.